good morning, everybody. Good to see your smiling faces. Have I told you I love hanging out with you? Did I say that already? I love hanging out with you. We are, um, thank you. I feel like I have family in the audience. Um, you guys are great. You're so responsive. <clears throat> Let me tell you, if, you're, if you haven't been here, we're in the middle of a series that's a little bit different. This summer, we're doing a series called Unforgettable. But instead of running one ribbon of theme through the whole thing, we decided to do several standalone talks. But every one of us that are up here in front of you teaching are sharing one unforgettable truth that somehow was indelibly etched into our minds in our, in our own spiritual journey. So they, it may seem really random. It is really random, but we're just sharing one little nugget each, each weekend that we feel like was a, was a memorable, unforgettable truth. So today, I want to talk about the idea of commitment and what's happened to it. And let me begin with, uh, by sharing a habitude with you. Some of you are aware that I, several years ago I did a, a, a four-book series called Habitudes. Habitudes are simply images that form leadership habits and attitudes. And the picture I want to share with you to kind of launch into this talk today is the image of the half-hearted kamikaze. You just think about that for a minute, okay? There's a great story behind it. I love this story. There was a, there was a, a guy who claimed to be a kamikaze pilot who just finished his 50th mission, okay? And so a journalist cornered him and said, wait, 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 you have to explain. How can you call yourself a kamikaze pilot, you know, who flies on one mission and gives up his life, and yet you've just finished your 50th mission? How do you explain that? And this guy got a big grin on his face, and he said, well, it's very simple to explain. You see, he said, I had a whole lot of involvement. Not much commitment, but a whole lot of involvement. And is that not, ladies and gentlemen, a picture of you and I today? whole lot of involvement. In fact, last count, I think I'm doing 17 things at once. Very involved, but commitment, not so much. To be wholeheartedly all in when all the glitz and glamour is gone and it ain't sexy anymore, we opt out. There's another option. There's something more glitzy going on somewhere. There's got to be. We love our options. And so to keep a commitment, I mean, would you agree with me? It's It's rare. This scenario, then, of a half-hearted kamikaze strikes me as rip-roaring hilarious. Some of you know the name Larry David. Larry David was one of the co-creators of the Seinfeld um, TV series. Really funny guy. He's now got a, a show called Curb Your Enthusiasm. I don't necessarily recommend you watch the show, but there was one particular scene my son showed me, and I thought, oh my gosh, he's nailed the half-hearted kamikaze. But instead of tell you about it, let's watch it together. Here it is. Kofi was here. Mm. What kind of moron is this Kofi carving his... I mean, what is that? Yeah, it's very childish. Takes a knife out and carves into the table? Mm. Inappropriate. How inappropriate is that? Mm. Hey, by the way, my dad and your dad are becoming very friendly in that nursing home. Oh, yes. no. Yes. Is that cute? Yeah. It was just his 80th birthday party. We, we took him to Japan. Mm. No yeah. kidding. Really? Yes, he hadn't been yeah. back since, since the war. He saw some of his family and uh, some oh of his goodness. military buddies he from the Air the Force. Um, wow. Well, yes. What did he do in the war? He was a, uh, a pilot. Really? What kind of a pilot? A uh, kamikaze pilot. Wow. Mm. Wouldn't he be dead? Um, not all of them died. I know, but kamikaze pilot, it kind of implies that you know, a kamikaze pilot is a pilot who crashed and died, right? I bet he didn't. He, he survived. Thank yes. goodness for that. He survived. Yes. Here's to, what, what did you say? Kamikaze, yeah. yes. But what happened exactly? Did he, did he try and, and, and crash the plane in, into a ship? He, he grazed the ship. Okay. All right. right. He grazed the ship. Grazed it. Is that because there was some kind of... Uh, malfunction with the plane? It doesn't really matter. He grazed well, I'm just it curious. and he lived and... And he's alive. And he's alive. Uh, yeah, but at the last second, what happened? Was he coming down and all of a sudden he said, you know, kamikaze business might not be for me. I think maybe I'll go back to base. Okay. Or something you know, like that. It's... A, it's um, huh? So what, what happened at the last second there? I'm, I'm uncertain. You know what's good is the um, the rainbow roll because it, it gives you a little bit of everything high. Are you ready to order? Yes. I will have the 
Chicken teriyaki. Chicken teriyaki. Chicken. 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 How about you, Yosh? Little chicken? Little on the edge, but you get the point. Now, the fact is, we are chicken. That's exactly a good way to describe us. We're the proverbial chicken who, remember the chicken and the pig that were asked to make a contribution to the ham and eggs breakfast? The chicken was involved, the pig was committed. Don't you think so in that equation? That's us. We're not bad people. We're actually good people. We're in church on Sunday morning for Pete's sake. But along the way, we've been conditioned by our culture to not really be committed. Too many things going on. Too many better things going on. The grass must be greener somewhere. And so we want to keep our options open. And we don't really stick with our commitments much anymore. But you and I both know, deep down in our heart of hearts, don't we, that there's no such thing as a half-hearted kamikaze. Either don't call yourself that or you get in. You're in or you're out. By the way, do you all remember watching the Super Bowl in January this year? The New York Giants won it all. Shocked everybody except for the people in New York. I mean, they were not a great team. In fact, they had the worst record going into the playoffs of any team in history. They were 9-7. and seven. But something happened toward the end of the season that seemed to turn everything around for them. And they told the story on ESPN. Here's what it was. The chaplain actually met with the team before a Sunday game. And he brought with him to the chapel service a box of poker chips. Not something you typically bring to a chapel service, but he brought the poker chips with him and he handed out a poker chip to every one of the players. Then he had one for himself. And he simply said, you know, in a poker game, it's a gamble. But regardless of the hand you've been dealt, in order to win, you got to get all in. I mean, you got to at least with a poker face say, I'm in. And you put those chips out. you got to at least demonstrate, I'm in. That's the only way you can win. And at that moment, he simply took his chip and on the table in front of him, he tossed his chip in and said, I'm all in. And then one by one by one, these players symbolically tossed their chip and made a statement and said, I'm in too. Now the Giants did not add any more talent to their squad. But they took the talent they did have, coupled it with commitment, took them all the way to win the Super Bowl. And it's only a picture of what I'm trying to illustrate today. In a culture where commitment is waning, marriages don't stay together, families don't stay together, we don't stay in a job very long, we don't stay in a church very long, the list could go on and on. I'm saying commitment may be the missing piece. This piece that seems to be evaporating in front of our eyes may be the very piece we need to make our lives count. And we celebrate it, don't we, when we hear about it? Come on, when we hear stories of, of a Mother Teresa in Calcutta who stays committed for decades to serving the poor, that's a great story. Or an athlete is committed. By the way, did anybody watch the opening ceremony of the Olympics on Friday night? Did you see any of the Olympic games today or yesterday? Incredible. We're about to watch for the next several days some very committed people. Are we not? And we will tell stories. When it's all done, I don't know who's going to win the gold or the silver or the bronze. We're going to tell stories, and it's going to be a story of commitment. All of them are talented. To get that far, you got fairly equal talent. You're not going to win a swimming race by five seconds. You're going to win by .01 seconds. Am I right about that? But what makes the difference? The person that wins it all is this mental thing. And this mental thing is all in. Somehow he was able or she was able to harness what was inside with this thing we're calling commitment. There's one particular race I want you to not miss. It's the men's 400 meter race. You probably always watch that one anyway. It's just, these are the fastest men in the world. But there's one particular athlete that will be running this year that's very different. Um, you'll spot him right away. He is the runner with no legs. Yes, you heard me right. It's not the Special Olympics, it's the Olympics. But he's a runner who, um, who has artificial legs, but he's competing. And he not only wants to be the best disabled runner, the fastest disabled runner, he wants to be the fastest runner in the world. And that is his ambition. But rather than me tell you the story, fix your eyes on the screen, let's watch the story. 21 years ago, a boy called Oscar was born with a rare condition that meant his feet were severely deformed. His parents faced a terrible choice. Watch him grow up unable to walk or amputate in the hope of a better future with artificial legs. But Oscar Pistorius would grow up not just able to walk, but to become one of the world's fastest athletes faster than any other disabled runner that's ever lived. And still, he wants more. 
He wants to be the fastest man in the world, with or without legs, and compete in the Olympics. In 1999, Oscar's mother spoke to local radio of her pride at her son's attitude to life and the way he fitted in at able-bodied school. Oscar's my middle son. He's 14 years old now, and he was born with missing bones in the legs and with God's help has gone from strength to strength. At primary school, he played soccer and tennis. He did wall climbing, abseiling, rollerblading, water skiing, ice skating, paddle skiing, you name it, he just did everything. And um, he's agile and a well-balanced teenager with a delightful sense of humor. He's a practical joker and not at all bitter. But Sheila Pistorius has never seen her son's greatest achievements. Soon after the radio interview was recorded and without warning, she died. Oscar was 15 years old. My mum passed away before I started running, so, you know, in a way I wish she was still here to, to see, but I've, I've no doubt that she's obviously watching down from heaven. I've got one tattoo that I got when I was 15, that's uh, my mother's birth date and the date she passed away. And then I got another one recently, which was uh, 1 Corinthians 9, 26-27. And the scripture just basically talks about subjecting your body to hard work and uh, to discipline. Nothing is enjoyable if it's something that's easy to achieve. At the end of the day, that just makes victory sweeter. I enjoy challenging the way people think. When they see someone with a disability, they always focus on the disability. You know, that perception is something that I want to kind of alter. It's not about how big the hill is, but how you get around it or under it or over it. It's a big difference between being good and being great. up in the morning, Dad said to my brother, you know, you put on your shoes, Oscar, you put on your legs. That's the last we want to hear about it. What an amazing story, don't you think? Now, Oscar is, is just one of many stories that we celebrate, and I think we celebrate them because they're so rare. He wasn't satisfied with just living with what he'd been dealt and kind of eking his way or making his way through life. He was beating the odds. And I think it's commitment, his commitment to this goal that even despite the difficulties, the disablement he had, he was still stretching toward this goal. And it's rare because it's hard. Most of us have been impacted by this culture where commitment leaks. And quite frankly, if we'll just get honest, as we age through life, we tend to value different things. When we were young, it was ideals. We had these ideals of we were going to change the world and make a difference and all those other pithy statements. But then we turned 30 and then 40 and then 50. And I don't know where you are in your life stage, but we start valuing balance. We love balance. That's, and who wouldn't want balance? We start valuing rest and relaxation. <laughs> love the lake in the summertime. We start valuing rest and relaxation as we need it more and more and more. We want to blend in, not stand out. Somehow life, the commitment just leaks as we go through. And quite frankly, somewhere along the way, at least in some categories of our life, we settle for some level of mediocrity. We don't ever say it out loud, but that's a fact. By the way, I love the word mediocre. You do know it's taken from two root words. It's a rock climbing term. Rock climbers would use the term. Mediocre literally means middle of the rock. It's a picture of a rock climber that was going to make it to the top of that mountain. His goal was reach the top. But somewhere along the way, the climb was hard. It's tiring. I am tired. And I'm hungry. And you know, I'm sure somebody's made it to the top and took photos and put them on Facebook. I'm just going to look at those photos on Facebook. Come on, let's just be honest. We settle for the virtual, not the real, don't we? We don't run the marathon. We get pictures of the people that ran the marathon. We don't actually lose the weight, but we see the commercials of the people that lost the weight. Come on, am I, get, am I meddling now in your life? So 
What's happened to us? I mean, in case you're not with me yet, two years ago I wrote a book called Generation IY. It's about the future, about the kids that are going to be the adults leading us. And I suggested that if we don't change the way we parent, teach, coach, and lead this emerging generation, by the year 2030, we're going to see five-year marriage contracts. I was way behind. Last year, three countries in our world, including Mexico, just to the south, is passing legislation for two-year marriage contracts. Sweetheart, can you give me two years? Now, you may say, well, it's not the end of the world. Well, no, but it may be the end of the world as we know it. Isn't it true, folks, come on with me, isn't it true that the stuff that really makes life count is when the glitz and glamour is gone, we stick with that commitment? Come on, am I right? Somehow we stay on track and we don't swerve, we don't deviate, we don't, we don't get distracted. We're staying with what we know. It may not feel right, but it is right. And call me old-fashioned, I'm okay with that. But I think, I think we've got to recapture it. Now, maybe before we recapture it or figure out how to recapture it, it might be good to just look at why, why we aren't this way naturally. Why commitment is so hard and rare and, and um, yeah, just rare. Um, I scribbled down three or four reasons. You don't have to write these down, but just think about them with me. When you think about why we don't stick with a commitment or even make a commitment, do one of these reasons ring true in your mind? Number one, I think we want to hold off for a better option that might come along. Come on, haven't you ever been invited to participate in something or commit to something and, and, and you say, well, you know, maybe, I may, I, may, I may come, maybe. But what you're really doing inside is, I um, hope to God another option comes up for that night, you know? And, and you'll take it if a better, and then if a done, option doesn't come up, you might still go. But it wasn't commitment, it was just playing out your hand. Where's the best option? Here's another one. Um, we don't want to commit to something and then find out later we were wrong. You know, nobody wants to put all their time and effort into something and then realize, darn it, that was the wrong decision. And here's another one. Sometimes I think we don't commit because we're afraid of failing. What if I can't keep the commitment? In fact, quite frankly, if you would get honest, some of you, that's keeping you from making a deeper commitment to your relationship with God. I don't know if I can live the Christian life. I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. And so we don't ever really step over the line and commit. We just, just want to come to church. Now, I don't want to be cruel, but this is all of us. It's some, there's something inside of us that's just afraid I can't come through, so I won't ever commit. And I'm saying, I think the stuff that makes life exhilarating and adventuresome and, and makes it meaningful is when we full-on say, I'm in, I'm all in. Whatever that is, a marriage, a church family, a mission, a work to do. What is it in your life right now that you would say, I know this is right, but somehow years ago, I opted out? Quite frankly, I think one of the biggest reasons we don't commit is, as I mentioned before, as we age, we just become a little bit, <laughs> we move from idealism to realism. That's what we call it. We, but we're really jaded and skeptical and cynical. Have you ever taken a test on how cynical you are? Can I give you one right now? I'm serious. I'm dead serious. I'm not going to hand out a piece of paper, but I want you to take your two hands and I want you to count on your fingers how many yeses you would give to the following 10 questions. We're just going to see how, how cynical you are. Okay? Here we go. Question number one. You put zero stock in astrology, which may not be a bad thing. Okay? Number two. In your opinion, all news is bias. Number three. You don't believe in fate, only coincidence. Number four, you expect the government to lie to you. We'll keep reading there. Number five, you think popular music today is purely a result of marketing, not talent. Six, love at first sight, it doesn't exist. Seven, you prefer, you prefer movies with realistic endings to movies with happy endings. Eight, if you need something done right, doggone it, you got to do it yourself. Nine, you don't vote. It doesn't make any difference in the end anyway. And ten, you don't believe in the supernatural. Okay. Now, how many fingers do you still have up on your hands? Shall we evaluate who we are based on our answers? Just check out the screen here. If you answered zero to three questions yes, cynical, not even close. In fact, if anything, you're a little bit naive, okay? Um, overall, you enjoy life and try not to be paranoid, even if you've been burned before. God bless you if you, zero, if you have yes to zero to three. Now, if you answered yes four to seven times, 
Yes, you're cynical, but more than anything, you're a realist. You see what's screwed up in the world, but you also take time to remember what's right. I love that. But if you answered eight to 10 questions, yes, your cynicism borders on paranoia. <laughs> Worry less, you're out to get the world just as much as it's out to get you, okay? Just a little fun test just to see how you're doing there. Okay, now, having said all that, I want to look at a scripture that is a tremendous strategy for life. I'm setting this up. Let me say that again. I want to share a scripture that's a tremendous strategy for life. In fact, you didn't know it, but you've already read it on the back of Oscar just a few minutes ago. It's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, and we're going to read verses 24 to 27. So if you have your Bibles, 1 Corinthians 9, 24 to 27. If you don't have your Bible, it's totally fine. We're going to put this passage up on the screen for you to read with your own eyes. But let's read it together, and then um, I want to make some comments. 1 Corinthians 9, starting with verse 24. Paul the Apostle is writing. He wrote this 2,000 years ago to a city in Corinth, and here's what he says. Do you not know that in a race, all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run then in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like a man running aimlessly. I do not fight like a man beating the air. No, I beat my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. Wow, sounds like a man that's very intentional, doesn't it? Now, it's interesting that Paul uses the race analogy. In fact, I call it interesting because, well, it makes sense, first of all. You know where Corinth is? It's a city in Greece. Do you know where the Olympics began? In Greece. Centuries ago, the Olympic Games came about when these Greek athletes just had toned their bodies up so much they thought it would be cool to compete against other nations and see the best fighting the best or running against the best or whatever. In fact, Corinth, the city itself, had its own set of games called the Isthmian Games, and they were located right there in that city. Maybe they were going on when Paul wrote this passage. But in any case, these Corinthian people knew exactly what Paul was talking about. And he was simply saying, you know, in a race, how all these runners line up. I mean, there may be dozens of runners line up. In fact, in back in these days, there were hundreds, of, kind of like a marathon, hundreds of liners lining up. But only one came in first. Only one won the prize. And Paul's saying, I dare you to approach your life like that. That it's not just a wandering about. It's not even just a trot toward the goal. It's a full-on, I've got a target, and I'm moving toward this. And listen, it wasn't a rat race Paul's describing where you're burnt out and exhausted and can hardly wait till it's over. You're exhilarated by this race because it's a race of passion. You know what the mission is that God's called you to do. You know exactly what you're supposed to do, and you are on your way forward. If I could summarize this passage in three little pithy statements, it would be this. Runners don't wander. Boxers are intentional right? I don't beat the air. And athletes, they're disciplined. In fact, a phrase I use with my own two children who are now adult children, but I said it to them all their lives. I said, you guys discipline yourself so someone else doesn't have to. You do know you're going to get disciplined. Either discipline yourself or someone else is going to discipline you. And you see, it was me in our home, okay? Now, all I'm simply saying is that's good words to live by today as adults. Somewhere as commitment seems to be leaking or weariness seems to be setting in, we've got to set our minds on a trajectory where we know what the goal is and we're moving toward that goal. The key is you're only going to capture this mindset if you know exactly what your target is. Do you know what your mission is in life? You do know in October... About 300 folks from the Northridge Church family are going to be in Chicago running the Chicago Marathon. You've heard Brad talk about that. Yeah, it's exciting. I'll be watching. I'll be watching. Okay. No, seriously, I'm excited about that. Now, some of these runners are really serious runners. They've been running all their life. And some of them, this is just going to be, wow, this, I'm going to get ready and do this thing. But the point is, these runners are on a mission. They're going to be raising money for a great cause, World Vision. And then physically that day, they're not wandering. There's a goal. Do you live your life this way? Now, what I want to do in the remaining minutes I have with you is I'm simply going to lay out three statements. 
statements that I think summarize the life strategy Paul gives us, not only in this text we just read, but in the life he lived as described in the book of Acts. So if you're taking notes, all you need to do is write down three sentences. Here we go. Sentence or statement number one. Strategy one could be summarized this way. Never get comfortable. Never, ever, 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 ever get comfortable. You know those runners in the Chicago Marathon coming up in October? The word they will use to describe as they're running the race is not, this was comfortable. They're not going to say that, okay? It wasn't a comfy time for them. Getting ready wasn't comfortable and running the race. Am I right about this? You were, now, it's exhilarating. You're exerting every ounce of energy. You're moving toward the goal. You're trying to beat your last time. But the point is, it's not a season of comfort. And nor was it with Paul. He lived his life like this. In fact, I don't know if you've read the book of Acts, but it's the, book, the book of Acts is the early church history. Uh, Paul and Peter and the other apostles and what they did to spread the faith across Asia Minor. Paul, get this, moved into cities wherever he, wherever he could across Asia Minor, and he would share the good news about Jesus Christ, how to have, build a, a relationship with Christ. Now, listen, most of the time, he had unfriendly crowds. This was a zany new cult, they thought. And so Paul would be taken outside the city and whipped, beaten, sometimes tortured. At least one time, he was stoned. I'm talking about the old-fashioned way of getting stoned, okay? I mean, they took rocks. Please do not get diverted. They took rocks, and you know, back then, they would often kill people by stoning them to death. Stephen was stoned to death. Paul was stoned to death. They left him there for dead. Usually, the body was gone, dead, or inches away, moments away from dying, and they would walk away. Paul was left for dead, but he didn't die. Hours later, he must have come to again, and I'm sure he was bloodied, but you know what he did next? Do you know what he did next? He went right back into that same city. I don't think he finished his sermon yet or something. I don't know, but he just went right back into the city. Now, all I'm saying is, Paul, you were either off your rocker, you're just weird, you're just one taco short of a combination plate, or or you're on a mission. I don't know where that came from. Or you are on a mission, and you've got got a goal in mind, and, and you seem like an outlier, a weirdo, strange to the average person, but the average person isn't committed. Paul's committed. And part of this commitment was never get comfortable. Now, let me tell you what I think our problem is. Our problem is this. We set conditions on our obedience to God. Well, I can't speak for you. Let me just speak for me. My problem is from time to time as I get older and things kind of get settled and I got the mortgage payment and the dog's fed and everything's fine, I have conditions on my obedience to God. Lord, if you're calling us to move, I'll move if the salary in the 401k is really good. Or we'll take that other, but if you, or if, or if, or and there's all kinds of ifs and buts, and it doesn't make us weird. It doesn't make us evil or wicked, or, or God doesn't love us anymore. But it does make us less usable. God's saying, boy, the more conditions you put on, I can't. I may call you to do something very strange, and you'll never. It won't even cross your mind because you're in the box, the comfortable air-conditioned padded box. We're comfortable. My guess is if you're like me, you would say, yeah, there's several categories in my life right now where I'm extremely comfortable. I'll share something with you. During the late 1980s, my wife and I uh, got a phone call. We were living in San Diego. I was a pastor at a large church. In fact, I, I was the associate pastor under Dr. John Maxwell. Some of you know John Maxwell's name. He's a great author. Um, we got an offer from a large church back east, we were in California, to come and candidate to become the new senior pastor of this big church. Well, my response was, oh, I'm honored, I'm honored, but I think I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing, so no thanks, and I hung up the phone. The next week, I got a second call from them. They said, no, 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 we're serious. You don't have to commit yourself, but would you at least come out, spend a weekend with us, preach, and meet the board, and the people, and blah, 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 blah. I said, I am honored, I am flattered, but really, seriously, I think I'm doing what I'm called to do, so no thanks, hung up. When they called me the third time, now they had my attention. They said, please, just come out, just just for the weekend, just give us one weekend, then you can say no. Well, this time I decided I better talk to my employer. Now, thankfully, I had a great relationship with John Maxwell, still do, and I sat down with John, and I said, John, can you take your employer hat off and put your mentor hat on and talk to me here? I said, I've gotten three calls from this large church back east. I'm not interested. I feel like I'm doing what I'm supposed to do, but I'm just wondering, am I supposed to go and I'm missing something? There's been three calls. And John and I had a great heart-to-heart. 
In fact, he said to me, Tim, I don't want you to go. But if you don't go and at least check it out, you'll always wonder what it would have been like had you tried. And he cried with me. We prayed and cried together. We were close. But he said, you should go. And so on the plane ride back east, it was so funny. My wife and I were talking about how we're going to say no. You know, kind of like when you're asked to sign up for a timeshare condo. How am I going to say no to this? How will I say no? I'm going to say, we are going to say no, right? You know? So we finally come up with our way. Okay, I know what we're going to say. I know what we're going to say. Well, we spent the weekend with this, these, these folks, and they were great people, and it was a great church, and everything was super. And so we had a battle on the flight, on the flight home. My wife and I were talking and praying, and, 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 and we finally thought, you know what? Maybe God's trying to shake us up and get us open to leaving this comfortable place in San Diego and going to this new place. And so when we got to San Diego, my heart was open then. And I emailed, and I said, I just want you to know, instead of saying no, we're open. Well, I got a call two weeks later from them. They said, we don't want you. <laughs> yes, sir. Did wonders for my self-esteem. But as my wife and I reflected back on that experience, here was our estimation. It seemed like a lot of ruckus to go through for your staying where you are. But now we see what God might have been doing. And I bet she's done it with you too. That was our Abraham Isaac experience. Do you know what I mean when I say that? Remember when Abraham was asked to sacrifice his own son Isaac? to put a dagger through his heart, and that's not like God. God doesn't kill people. That's not what he does, but God was just saying, I just want to see if you'd be willing to do it, this bizarre thing. I want to see if you're comfortable or if you're obedient, and I think for us, God wanted to just say, are you willing to leave the nest and do something I'm calling you to do? Because five years later, after a few incidents like that one, God did move us away to a very uncomfortable situation where we had to raise our salary, raise our support, raise all kinds of money, and it was hard. But let me tell you something. God knew what he was doing when he got us uncomfortable way back in the late 80s. So I'm asking you a question. Are there any times where you've allowed yourself, maybe purposefully, to just get cozy and comfy, maybe apathetic, lethargic, still go to church, but I'm not really committed Probably the greatest picture I can give you today of what I'm talking about was this nobody who lived centuries ago. Probably you've never heard of him. His name was Telemachus. Telemachus lived during the latter years of the Roman Empire. And he lived far away from Rome in a monastery where he pretty much lived a life of prayer and silence and solitude. But on one particular season of his life, he felt like that in his prayer time, God was poking him to move out of this comfortable place to the city of Rome. He completely rejected the idea. He thought, no, Rome is a sinful city. It's like Las Vegas. He didn't say that, but it was like Las Vegas. And he thought, I'm not going to do this. And, and yet the more he prayed, the more he felt like he was being pushed by the Holy Spirit to, to go. So he gathered his belongings and he made this long trip to Rome. When he got there, he, he couldn't believe his eyes. It was this crowd of people with noise and pagan idols. And oh my goodness, it was just so opposite of what he was used to. But he saw a crowd moving toward one direction. He said, where are you all going? They said, we're going to the games. Come with us. And he did, even though he didn't know a soul, he just got caught up in the crowd and he went into the Grand Colosseum in Rome. And because he was a little man, he got on the front row next to the fence that split the field from the people. And then he watched something that was absolutely unbelievable to him. Out of one side of the stadium, the gates opened and the gladiators came out. You've seen pictures of them, the breastplates and shields and swords. And then as they looked off the other side, a door opened and it was these frail people called followers of the way, Christians. And in this day, it was going to be the gladiators beating up on the Christians who were tied up with no weapons. These guys were untied with lots of weapons. Well, Telemachus could not believe his eyes. And when the fighting began, he just was beside himself. He started screaming, in the name of Christ, forbear, meaning stop this nonsense. But nobody was listening. Everybody was yelling. So he yelled louder at the top of his lungs, in the name of Christ, forbear. And still, he wasn't getting anybody's attention. And so it was this point that Telemachus said, I got to take action. And this little chubby monk climbed over the fence that separated the playing field from the grandstands and he trotted out into the field screaming and waving his arms he would grab the arms of these big gladiators and say in the name of Christ forbear well they weren't paying any attention but, but at this point people were noticing there's a man out there he doesn't belong out there what's he doing out there 
But one by one, he would grab the arms of these men and they would usually fling him down and then continue their, their murder. But finally, Telemachus grabbed the arm of one of these gladiators and as he's grabbing the arm, someone from the grandstands of this great Colosseum said, take your sword and run him through. And the gladiator decided that would be a good idea. And so he flung this poor man on the ground and with his sword he rammed it right through his chest. True story. But in this moment with blood coming out of his body, Telemachus lying on his back looked up into the eyes of this man who had just killed him. And in his dying breath, this time he whispered, in the name of Christ, forbear. And he died. But it was at this moment something seems to change. This gladiator that had just killed him dropped his sword. It suddenly dawned on him what was going on here, and it wasn't fun anymore. And this gladiator walked off the field, which in one sense must have given permission to the others because one by one these others started seeing them leave, and all of them thought, I don't want to be doing this anyway. And so they dropped their swords until all of them had left the field. And now there were some Christians dead, some still alive, but it was over. And then if you were to watch the stands in this Colosseum that day. History tells us that pockets of, of the crowd just slowly began to make their way out of the stadium. It was like reality struck them on how foolishness this was. Until everybody had left in boycott except for one small group of people sitting around the emperor who feared for their life. And ladies and gentlemen, that was the last gladiator Christian fight ever to be held in the Roman Colosseum. From that point on, they didn't do it anymore. And it was all because of one ordinary guy that you have never heard of who just said, I can't sit still. I can't be comfortable. And he did something. Now, I don't know what your step out is, but I just, want you, I just want to ask you, are there areas of your life that you would say, I had set a goal way back when to lose weight, to eat right, to do this, to do that, to get committed, and I'm not doing it. Let me give you statement number two. The second strategy, I think, in this, is this deal is don't allow for a plan B. Don't allow for a plan B. Now, let me tell you exactly what I mean by this. If you look at the life of the Apostle Paul, the way he lived his life, and by the way, it's described in the book of Acts, here was a man on a mission who, once he understood what God wanted him to do, made no provision for failure, no provision for the flesh, for the lazy bones that he might have experienced early one morning on, on a day he was supposed to go out and preach. He didn't, he didn't allow for, for any season where God might not come through. In other words, here's how Paul lived his life. He lived his life in such a way that he and God would partner together. Paul would do his part, and if God didn't come through, he was in big trouble. Do you remember last week I said something to you? I said, our lives should demand a supernatural explanation. Maybe not every day. I know we got to do laundry and go to the work and da-da-da-da-da. But there should be, in every season of our life, a time where people look at us and say, you couldn't have done that on your own. You and God must be linked up somehow. If you don't have that much talent, God surely must have shown up and did something. Now, please hear me. A couple of caveats. I do know that many of you, maybe most of you are like me, and you feel like, good grief, my life is a plan B right now. Right? I mean, I didn't, I've not obeyed him perfectly, and... That's okay. Listen, I'm saying where you are now, start where you are now. Once you find out the will of God, don't allow for the flesh to prevail. Don't allow for comfort to set in, convenience to set in. Now, I know there are times when you need a plan B and maybe a plan C and D and E. During those times you don't know what to do, you should get counsel, you should seek out wisdom. And maybe there needs to be, if you don't know what's supposed to happen, several plans. But listen, I'm talking about that scenario and you know darn well what I'm talking about. Do I sound like your dad? You know darn what I'm talking about. When you know that you know that you know what you're supposed to do and now you're acting like you don't. Not really sure. I tell you what, once Paul found out what he was supposed to do, he, it, was, it, was, it was all in. There was no half-hearted kamikaze in his sandals. Now, I tell you, this, this no plan B thing, let me tell you how it works. This is how I notice it works. When you have a plan B, you tend to use it. In other words, if you allow for, it's like a safety net. You, if you have a safety net, you're probably going to use a safety net. A quick story. Um, in my life, I graduated many, many years ago with my bachelor's degree. Many, 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 many years ago. And I was a double major, but one of my majors was theology. I saw myself in ministry in my career. 
And um, when I got done with my degree, I had five job opportunities waiting for me. And I don't think it's because I was brilliant. I didn't have the highest GPA in my graduating class. In fact, I graduated with fellow seniors who had a stellar grade point average. They were brilliant, 4.0, perfect A's everywhere on the report card. But they graduated with no job opportunities. And it baffled me, and I thought, how can these smart kids that are better than me, how come, how come this is happening? I think there were two reasons. Number one, I had already jumped in to my career during my college days. In other words, as I'm reading about theology, I'm practicing. I'm in a prison ministry, I'm in the streets, I'm doing youth work and, and traveling, and, and so I had some experience. I was committed to the stuff I was reading about. But secondly, I noticed that all those 4.0 guys, those smart guys, were probably too smart. All of them that had come up with a plan B, just in case ministry didn't work out, ended up using their plan B. Now, I don't think God loves them any less. I'm just telling you, it's human nature. It is human nature. If you make allowances, you're going to use them. If you say, I'm going to break the diet today, maybe, you're going to break the diet today. Am I right about this? That cookie is looking really good. So, I'm just saying, whatever the category is, I know you're on plan B from the very beginning of your life, but where you are right now, don't allow to make provisions for it not working. I remember in 2003, just eight years ago, um, I started a nonprofit organization. In addition to my work here uh, as your teaching pastor, I lead an organization called Growing Leaders. We launched in 2003. It's a nonprofit organization that partners with schools and universities to build tomorrow's leaders out of the students. I love what I do. But I remember when I first started out, we had nothing. You know, whenever you start a business organization, you kind of start from scratch. And we were scratching really bad. We weren't at zero. We were below zero, if you know what I'm talking about. And I had friends in Atlanta, where I live, that all said, oh, we're proud of you, this is exciting. But then they all said, you know what? Well, not all, about four or five of them said, if that didn't work out, I just want you to know, we will hire you in a heartbeat. We would love to have you work at an organization. And they were just being nice. They were being friends. But I had to shut them out. I mean, I don't mean that cruelly, but I had to not listen to that because I thought to myself, the moment I say, oh, good, I could do that, I probably wouldn't put all my eggs in this basket. And I needed to put all my eggs in this basket. And there's some baskets right now you need to put your eggs in them. And you kind of divvy them out. You diversify your commitment. Is there something that this plan B might, might be diluting the very thing that you're supposed to be doing? And you're a lesser version of yourself than you should be in your marriage, on your job, with your kids, you name it. I, um, when I was a pastor in San Diego, I had a very interesting episode that taught me this really, really um, loud and clear. This no plan B thing. Um, late one night, I climbed into bed. In fact, it was the middle of the night. It was 1.30 or 2 o'clock in the morning. I was sleeping soundly. And I got a call from Lori, one of my friends, and she said, Pastor Tim, I need you to come down to the hospital right away. There's a family down here that doesn't go to church. They don't know any pastor in town. And their son has just been a horrible, been in a horrible accident. That's all the details she gave me, but I put my clothes on and I drove down. When I got to the hospital, that's when I discovered how horrible it was. This young man, Tim was also his name, was in the intensive care unit. You know, you only go there when it's really bad, like they're keeping you alive with machines. I didn't know it, but Tim had scars and scratches and bandages and tubes going everywhere. He's being kept alive by the machines. And so I met the family just outside the ICU and they were there grieving, understandably. And so I just sat there with them and listened to them as they told me the story. And then I tried to encourage them. And then I prayed with them. And quite frankly, I wasn't trying to be rude, but I thought, I really don't know this family. They don't know me. So I'll pray with them. And once I'm done, and after that hour, I'll just, I'll just go. And I'll let them have time to themselves. But as I get up to go, after my nice prayer, it was a nice prayer, by the way. Um, Lori, my friend, my, I think she's my friend, said, why don't you stay longer? In fact, why don't we go in the ICU and you pray directly for Tim in there? Thanks, Lori. I was thinking the same thing. Great. Super. Let's do it. So I'm, I hate to admit this, but begrudgingly, I went into the ICU. I mean, your stomach has to be strong in there because, you know, there's a lineup of beds and you're only allowed to get in there if you're a family member or clergy. Darn it. I was clergy. So we get inside and um, there's Tim, tubes going everywhere. There he is in his bed, unconscious. They're wondering how long he's going to be able to last and how long do we keep him plugged in. But I decided right then I would turn into 
the most high reverend clergyman. I was going to pray a beautiful prayer over this young man in my, my voice that was two octaves lower, if you know what I mean. Dear Lord God, I thank thee for the bountiful blessings which thou hast bestowed upon us. Blah, 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 blah. And thou heavens and the earth and blah, 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 blah. Do you know these prayers? You pray them at Thanksgiving time every year. You know what I'm talking about? This beautiful prayer. In fact, when I got done, I mean, it was a King James Version, poetic, pretty, beautiful prayer. In fact, I felt pretty good about myself when I got done. Put my gun in the back of my pocket. Done my job here. The family said, thank you, Dr. Well, that's so nice of you to pray. Thank you very much. They said, oh, it's such a beautiful prayer. We're going to write it down. I said, you should write it down. That's a good prayer. So I started walking out the door. And as I get to the door, I'm telling you, I'm almost free and clear. I believe that God, God just stopped me dead in my tracks. Now, I didn't meet him face-to-face, and I didn't hear an audible voice. But do you know those times when you sense the Holy Spirit is just stopping you from going any further? It was like a wall just right there, and I just stood there. And, and, and it was as though God said to me in that quiet, still voice on the inside, now why don't you go back and really pray? I said, Lord, I just did. They said it was beautiful. Didn't you hear them? And God basically reminded me or said to me in that moment, in his own words, that I didn't really pray. I played, not prayed. I was saying a prayer to be heard by other people. You ever do this? Oh, I'm going to say this really cool phrase. They're going to tweet it. It's going to be awesome. It's going to be great. And I just kind of patty caked with God, just kind of played the patty cake game, the clergy, said the nice prayer, then got out of there. Now I'm in a quandary because I'm having this, you know, back and forth volley with God for a few seconds by the door the exit door of this ICU, and I said, Lord, how, what am I going to do? If I go back, what am I going to say? Hey, can I pray again? The first one didn't take. I mean, how is this going <laughs> to shake out? I don't know. So I finally decided, all right, I'm going to go back, but if they think this is foolish, I'm going to blame you, God. I am going to blame you. So I turned around, and I said, family, do you mind if we pray again? This family was so gracious to me. They said, shoot, if one's good, two's better. Let's do it again. Join hands. Join hands. Let's do it. So this time I prayed a very simple prayer, not very pretty, fact, it was probably good that it wasn't very pretty. It was real. I said something like, God, I believe you're real. And I believe it is in your nature to make us whole. And I don't know what you want to do in this specific situation, but I believe you heal. And I just want you to do something to show this family that you're alive and well. Amen. Now, I'll be honest with you. I kind of half hoped that I'd open my eyes and Tim would jump up off the bed and say, hallelujah. But he didn't. He didn't, unfortunately. But in that moment, I knew I had obeyed God. You know that moment you feel like, okay, I did what I was supposed to do. And this time I could walk out with some peace inside of me. The cool part of this, about the story is the ending. Just a couple of days later, Lori called me and said, Tim, I need you to come down to the hospital again. Well, this time I'm thinking, oh my gosh, I'm going to go down and make funeral arrangements. But when I got down there, I met Tim. Just moments after we got done praying and all left the ICU, he opened his eyes. He was fully conscious, fully aware. In fact, he said, where am I? The doctors and nurses were quite amazed. They didn't have an explanation, and Tim is doing fine to this day. But folks, I'll tell you what I think happened. I don't think anybody prayed a pretty prayer that made a difference. I think God wanted to do something, and he needed somebody that wouldn't just play the game and have plan B's and just look good and that all that matters is looking good. I think he needed somebody, a group of people that were all in. I'm just asking you, are there plan B's rippled all through your life right now? Let me go on to the third statement very quickly. The last statement I want to make to you is very, very simple. It simply goes like this. Play offense, not defense. Play offense, not defense. Now, all I mean by this is simply this. I'll make this brief. 99% of the time, God's will for your life is going to put you in a position of initiative that you don't sit back and wait for others to do it. You're not waiting until it's popular. You know that you know what you got to do it, and now you're to play offense, not defense. You're to act, not just react. Now, certainly there's times to respond to needs, no doubt about it, but God's will is not just seeing which way the wind is blowing and kind of just getting aligned with it. It's acting. In fact, do you notice something? It's called the book of Acts, not the book of Reacts. Isn't that interesting? It was the Acts of the Apostles. And by the way, if you read the book of Acts, you see that the early church, the little church in the very beginning, was setting the issues in society. They were storming, changing the culture around them. And society, a few years later, was trying to scamper to keep up with the church. And today, it's the other way around, isn't it? Society is setting the issues today. And the church is trying to come up with a statement to make on what we believe. 
All I'm saying is, folks, are you ready to play offense, not just defense in your life? Instead of just eking by the week, are you ready to go on a mission? Whatever that is. It may just be living a quite ordinary life, but you're a light to everyone you meet. But you're on mission. I find it interesting that when Jesus talked about this very subject, he spoke to his 12 disciples, and here's what he said. He said, I just want you to know that I will build my church on you guys right here. And then he said, the gates of hell will not prevail against you. Remember that statement? Now, do you know how we've typically read that statement in the past, at least us in America? We've read it to say this. Well, that just means the devil will not be able to come against me so harshly that I won't be able to stand up against the onslaught of the enemy. Folks, he said the gates of hell. Have you all been attacked by a gate before? Anybody been attacked by a gate? I think you're in a minority, aren't you? He's saying, I'm expecting you to be on the offense. And by the way, the gates won't even stand up when you attack them. He's assuming. He's assuming we're playing offense, not defense. Now, please hear me. There's certain times of your life you are playing defense. You've, you've got a sickness or whatever. I realize that. But I'm saying as a rule, not the exception, as a rule, are you playing offense? Now, let me close this way. You do know 1 Corinthians 9, 20, 20, 24 to 27, the passage we just read, is just a short passage, but it's followed by chapter 10, verse 1. In other words, Paul didn't write it in chapters. This was one long letter. Do you know what he says next? He simply begins to describe the converse situation to this kind of a life, this run-to-win sort of life. And he simply says this. I'm just going to read a few verses as we close. He says, For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers, that our forefathers were all under the cloud, and they all passed through the sea, that is the Red Sea, They were all baptized into Moses. Uh, They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them, and their bodies were scattered over the desert. Now these things occurred to them as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil as some of them, um, on evil as some of them were. Now let me stop right there. He's simply saying that early, 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 first generation that wandered through the wilderness for 40 years never made it. And the reason they didn't was not because God didn't love them, not because he'd not given them Ten Commandments, wasn't because they, he had fed them, he'd clothed them, he'd sustained them. But they became half-hearted kamikazes. If you continue reading, they got diverted, distracted from the mission. They started dabbling in this and that and golden calves and all of that. And tens of thousands of them died. And they died God loving them all the way through. But God said, you know what? I can't do much with half-hearted kamikazes. I just need a few of you if you're all in. I'll take 12 disciples. I'll just take a Northridge church. But you get in. You get all in. And if you're all in, well, I've already made that commitment. I'm all in too. Do you know one picture of what I'm describing? The contrast is so vivid. Two of Jesus' disciples, probably the two most popular ones, Simon Peter, you know Peter, and Judas Iscariot, you know Judas. Do you know their lives wonderfully and interestingly parallel in so many ways? They were both very influential among the 12 disciples. They had high influence. They, <laughs> they were both leaders in one sense. They both had responsibilities that the others did not have. And get this, you do remember this, don't you? Both Judas and Simon Peter failed Jesus miserably at the end of his earthly ministry. You remember Judas is famous for the betrayal, right? He betrayed Jesus with 30 pieces of silver. We hear that every Easter time. Judas is famous for this horrible, horrible betrayal. But then Simon Peter, Simon Peter failed him three times. He denied Jesus three times. You might say that was kind of worse than one betrayal. But get this, following those two failures, Simon Peter experiences his greatest days. His future was better than his past after the failure. Judas never really recovered from the failure. In fact, he tries to throw the money back at the religious leaders, and because they won't take it and he's so lost in his grief, he commits suicide. Why could these two guys experience failure and one has his greatest days and the other has his worst days and then dies. I think I know what it is. It's one thing. It's one thing, in my opinion. Did you ever notice as you read about Peter and Jesus interacting, Peter was the very first one of the disciples, probably the first one of anyone, to call Jesus 
Lord. You're God. You're the son of the living God. Peter, Jesus said, you're right, Peter. That's exactly who I am. Jesus was addressed by Peter as master. I'm all in. Judas, on the other hand, if you read all the times he spoke, just I dare you to go through and read the Gospels again. All the times Judas speaks, he never once, never once addresses Jesus as master. He calls him good teacher, wonderful rabbi, good guy, show me another miracle, it was awesome. But he's just kind of a looky-loo, wanting to wait out his options, see if this religious thing works out. And it didn't. All I'm simply saying is, these two guys are a picture of us. One was a kamikaze, one was the, other, one, the opposite, half-hearted kamikaze. I'm just saying, I'm asking you, what part of your life now do you need to be all in? Let's pray. Father, I just pray briefly now at the conclusion of this time together. As we leave this building, would you show us what area of our life have we allowed to get comfortable? Have we put up all kinds of plan Bs in case God doesn't work out? Have we started playing defense? Father, even this week, begin to give us the courage in that one zone where we need some discipline and some commitment. Help us, God, to step into it and to get all in. Now, with your heads bowed, Every week, I love to pray with people that are here and would say, Tim, I don't think I've ever made that first commitment to the Lord. In other words, I've been in church, I know a lot about God, but I've never stepped over that line of faith and said yes to Jesus and invited him to come into my life and to be my personal Savior and Lord. If that's you, I'm just telling you, he's already made his commitment to you. He went to the cross and died on that cross for your sin. He paid the price for yours and my sin. But now it's our move. And he's just asking, are you in? If today you'd like to, right where you're seated, just to say a little prayer and say, I want to be in. I want to belong to him. I'm going to lead you in a prayer. I'm going to pray it phrase by phrase. But if my phrases express the desire of your heart, I want you just to repeat them after me, even if it's your own words, and invite him to come in. Let's do that. Dear Lord, I thank you that you made the first commitment to me. Thank you for coming to the cross and dying for my sin. Thank you, God, for forgiving me of my sin. Right now, I'm inviting you to come into my life and to be my Savior and Lord. I'm all in. I need you to give me the strength to live this life but I want this life. Thank you for the gift of everlasting life with you. Now make me the kind of person you want me to be. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, real quick before you go, if you just prayed that prayer, that is, in my opinion, the most significant prayer or decision you'll ever make. And I want you to do one more thing if you don't mind. We want to help you get started in that commitment you just made. And so on the inside of your program, there's a little flap, an orange flap. In fact, the one you can tear off. If you would just do us the favor of filling that out really quickly, um, your name and address. And then at the bottom, just check that little box that says, Today, I prayed to receive Christ in my life for the first time. What we'd like you to do is on your way out, just drop that in one of the boxes next to the door on the way out. We'd love to follow up, invite you to something called Starting Point, send you some things and get you started in this relationship with God. Folks, I love hanging out with you. Thank you for coming today. Have a great week, and God bless you.